Uh, I'm uh, amazed by the crowd tonight. I'm curious, how many people are here at a Socrates event for the very first time? Would you raise your hands? Amazing. And uh, I'm curious, how many people are here tonight for the last time? Would you raise your hands? That's good. All my friends, thank you. Um, before I get, in, get into anything profound, I, I want to say that we're anxious to stay in touch with you. We've been having administrative problems because I'm the administrator. And um, I, uh, I hide behind the idea that I'm a right brain person. And um, so this isn't easy for me. I want to encourage you, there, are, there were on your seats a moment ago blue or salmon-colored index cards. Blue or salmon... Salmon is kind of a pink, for those of you who don't know that. And um, if you would do this either while I'm talking or certainly not while Dr. Polkinghorne is talking, but if you would, uh, before the evening is over, um, put down your name and address, even if you've done this before because we're, we're starting a new database and I know that we've lost a few of you. Um, put down your name and address, um, SAT scores. <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, your name and address and your email address would be very helpful. That's the most important thing. Also, if you're interested in doing a book club, we did a number of these uh, last spring. They were very successful, and we've been unable to follow it up. If you're interested in doing a book discussion group of any kind on any of the books uh, or any of the speakers that we've had, write that information down if you would, and we will do our very best to get in touch with you and try to facilitate that. Um, so name and address email address, and any book club information or predilections you have. And then, of course, any general comments that you would like to make that are positive, feel free to write those down as well. Um, and when, when the evening's over, maybe you can put them on the front table there, leave them, and we'll collect them. That'd be very, very helpful. Um, Socrates in the City, for those of you who are new to these events, um, is designed to help busy New Yorkers take a moment um, out of our busy lives to stop and think a bit more deeply about what life is all about, to answer the big questions or to try at least to begin to answer them. Socrates famously said the unexamined life is not worth living. I think many of us could probably do with a bit more self-examination. I know I could, and having speakers such as Dr. Polkinghorn is meant to make that process a bit easier for us. Of course, these events are only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we'd like to think that these would kick off the Socratic process in each of us, but that in between these events, you might um, participate in one of our book discussion groups. You might read one or more of the books that we have available on our book table. Um, I recommend them very highly to you. We're giving them uh, to you at what, whatever price we get them at, so there's no profit on them. They're wonderful books, and they're also wonderful books to give away as gifts to your particularly unthoughtful friends. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so think about that. And of course, uh, Dr. Polkinghorne will happily autograph his books and I'll autograph any of the other books that you'd like to have autographed. Um, by the way, I should say tonight's event is generously being sponsored by the New Canaan Society, a group I had a very small hand in founding almost nine years ago. The New Canaan Society is a men's fellowship which has as its modest goal the idea of helping its members be better husbands and fathers. We have dinner events in New York about once a month. Uh, among other things. And if you'd like more information, um, we've got some literature on our front table. Um, we proudly count David Bloom, the NBC correspondent who died in Iraq, as one of our members, and he certainly was a dear friend. I also want to mention that there is uh, information, a flyer out front as well, on a free concert. 
uh, next Thursday, sponsored by the Geneva School Conservatory. As I say, that's next Thursday night. Um, please pick up a flyer and have a look. I've heard great things about it. Otherwise, I wouldn't um, pass that information along to you. And it is free. Um, so to tonight's subject, belief in God in an age of science. In the last hundred years or so, many people have come to think that somehow modern man, quote-unquote, uh, ought to be beyond believing in God. This idea has continued to enjoy a kind of strangely unchallenged popularity and has rather dramatically affected our culture, sometimes negatively, as is the case with many unchallenged assumptions. I thought it behooved us to apply a bit more rigor to our examination of this matter than we've generally applied, and tonight is meant as a small initial application of that self-same rigor. And I can repeat that sentence. Um, it's come to my attention that some of the very brightest minds on our planet, for, for, for those very brightest minds on our planet, there is in fact no disparity between the truth as promulgated in the biblical faiths and the truth promulgated by scientific discovery. But as I say, we don't often hear from those bright minds, and I'm very happy to remedy that tonight with, if I may say so, one of the brightest. I think no matter where you come out on this issue, it will all do us all kinds of good to hear from our guest speaker tonight, Sir John Palkinghorn. I first came to hear Dr. Palkinghorn in Cambridge, England, just over a year ago at a C.S. Lewis conference that was held at Oxford and Cambridge universities. As luck would have it, Oxford and Cambridge universities are located in Oxford and Cambridge, England, respectively. So, it's all a little too neat, isn't it? Um, in any case, I was very taken with Dr. Palkinghorn, and I asked him to come to New York City and speak at Socrates, and of course, here he is. Um, now, I have to say, we've never had a knight of the British Empire at Socrates in the city, at least not that I know of, and I'm not quite sure what the protocol is exactly. I assumed that the fact that Dr. Polkinghorne was a knight didn't mean that he would necessarily be wearing armor. Uh, but just to be on the safe side, I asked him not to wear any armor. Uh, and it seems that he's uh, complied with my request, unless he's hiding a Kevlar vest under there, which we'll never know. Um, I said to him, though, if he did feel compelled to wear armor, he might at least wear his beaver up like Banquo's ghost in Hamlet so, so that we might better hear what he had to say. Thank you, all you Banquo fans out there, for laughing at that. Um, a bit of word on our format. Uh, Dr. Polkinghorne will speak for about 35 or 40 minutes. And then we'll have plenty of time for questions and answers. Um, if you have a question, I implore you, please, to step to the microphone here. Uh, I implore you to be brief and to speak clearly and to end your question with a proper punctuation mark. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. Um, nothing like a punctuation mark joke to get the crowd warmed up. Uh, before I introduce Dr. Polkinghorne property, let me again remind you once more about the index cards. That is, in fact, quite important, at least to me, that before you leave here this evening, you do um, fill out uh, your name, email address, most importantly. And then, of course, as I say, book club information, but please uh, don't neglect to do that. Um, also, uh, in the past, we've had problems. People just kind of come in here and there's no time to pay. If you have not paid tonight, please, on your way out, 
please do pay. Even if you don't like the event, please uh, <laughs> pay, uh, pay on the way out. That would be um, very helpful. And actually, we're going to have a, a raffle. Um, what do they call it? Um, we're giving away four books. Uh, to, we're going we're to put all your, your, your tickets, your red tickets, in a bowl. I'll, I'll pick one out, and uh, the winner gets books. Okay. Now, the Reverend Dr. John Polkinghorne, KBE, FRS, DDS, Notorious B.I.G. That's a typo. That's... That's a hip-hop joke. I don't expect you to get Dr. Polkinghorne. It's... uh, it's, it's <laughs> In any case, the Reverend Dr. John Polkinghorne comes to us from Cambridge University, England. He is a fellow of the Royal Society, a fellow and former president of Queen's College, Cambridge, and a canon theologian of Liverpool Cathedral. Dr. Polkinghorne is married to Ruth Polkinghorne. They have three children, Peter, Isabel, and Michael. Dr. Polkinghorne's distinguished career as a physicist began at Trinity College, Cambridge, where he studied under Dirac and others. He became a professor at Cambridge in 1968. In 1974, he was elected fellow of the Royal Society. During that time, he published many papers on theoretical elementary particle physics in learned journals. Uh, If it sounds like I know what I'm talking about, I just want to say I got a one on my AP physics exam. That is not a good score. Um, In uh, in 1979, Dr. Polkinghorne resigned his professorship uh, to train for the Anglican priesthood. He served as curate in Cambridge and Bristol and was vicar of Bleen in 1984 through 1986. Vicar of Bleen. Um, In 1986, he was appointed fellow, dean, and chaplain at Trinity Hall, Cambridge. And in 1989, he was appointed president of Queen's College, Cambridge. His own words in reaction to this honor from his official bio, quote, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Uh, It's actually in the bio. You can go online and look that up. I have to say I'm surprised that particularly as a top physicist, Dr. Polkinghorne would have been so naive as to believe that someone might have actually knocked him over with a feather. (laughs) Even, even, Even a very, very, very large feather. One from an emu or ostrich, perhaps would hardly be able to knock over an average-sized adult male, even if he were temporarily stunned at his appointment to the presidency of a Cambridge college. And as I say, even I, as a non-physicist who got a one on his AP exam, know that. And I'm embarrassed to report that Dr. Polkinghorne, with all his fancy degrees and honors, somehow did not know that. I think that... uh, Given Dr. Polkinghorne's weight and any reasonable move friction coefficient, the idea of his being knocked over by a feather is patently and demonstrably absurd. But I'm sure that by now he's repented of the statement. In any case, Dr. Polkinghorne retired as president of Queen's College in 1996. He is a member of the General Synod of the Church of England and of the Medical Ethics Committee of the British Medical Association. He was appointed KBE, Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire, in 1997. Now, a word to the wise. I'm told that, like many knights, Sir John is handy with a broad axe. 
And if you aren't in full agreement with his talk tonight, he might very well be forced to smite you. <laughs> or cleave you, as the case may be. As most of us know, Dr. Polkinghorne has published a series of remarkable books on the compatibility of religion and science. These began with The Way the World Is. Um, he, he said, it was what I would like to have said to my scientific colleagues who couldn't understand why I was being ordained. The Way the World Is is available on our book table. It's a fabulous book. Just last year, Dr. Polkinghorne won the prestigious, very prestigious, Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. The award has previously been awarded to such figures as Mother Teresa and Alexander, Sol and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, contrary to popular belief, it has never been awarded to Sir Elton John or to Sting. <laughs> Glad to clear that up for some of you. Um, so let me say then, what a pleasure it is now to welcome to this podium at Socrates in the City, Sir John Polkinghorn. Thank you. Oh dear, what an act to follow. Um, <laughs> let me say I'm very pleased to be here to try and uh, stumble along in Eric's wake. Um, you'll gather I'm somebody who wants to take science absolutely seriously. And I think that we are right to do so in, in, in this age, age of science. Um, and I'm also someone who wants to take religion, in particular my own religion, Christianity, absolutely seriously as well. And I believe that I can do that, not of course without puzzles occasionally, <clears throat> but without intellectual dishonesty, and indeed with some degree of mutual enhancement. Because it seems to me that science and religion have one extremely important thing in common, that both are concerned with the search for truth. The question of truth is as important to religion as it is to science. Religion can do all sorts of things for you. It can comfort you in, 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 in life and in death, but he can't do any of those things unless it is actually true. Now, of course, science and religion are looking for different aspects of the truth. Science has purchased its very great success by the modesty of its ambition. Science does not seek to ask and answer every sort of question. It restricts itself essentially to asking questions of process, how questions of how things come to be. And it also restricts the kind of experience that it takes into account in framing and finding its answers to those questions. Science treats the world as an object, as an it, as something that you can put to the experimental test that you can pull apart to see what it's made of. And we've learned all sorts of very significant things by doing that. But we also all know that there is a whole realm of human experience, personal experience, and I would wish to add the transpersonal experience of encounter with the sacred reality of God, a realm of experience in which testing has to give way to trusting. If I'm always setting little traps to see if you're my friend, I will destroy the possibility of friendship between us. And religion is asking a different set of questions, deeper questions, in my view more interesting questions even than those of science, questions of meaning and purpose. Is there something going on 
in what is happening in the world. So there are lots of questions, it seems to me, that are necessary to ask and meaningful to ask, but which are just not scientific questions in their character, and therefore questions which science by itself is unable to answer. And interestingly enough, there are some of those questions are questions that arise from our experience of doing science, but take us beyond science's self-limited power of inquiry. You might call them, if you like, uh, learned language, meta-questions, meta questions that take us beyond. And I want to start what I'm going to say this evening by considering briefly with you two of those meta-questions. And the first one is this. It's a very simple question. It's so simple, in fact, that most of the time we don't even stop to think about it, but I think it is worth thinking about. And this is simply this. Why is science possible at all? Why is it that we can understand the physical world in which we live? Well, you say, might say that's pretty obvious. We've got to survive in the world. If we don't understand the world, we'll soon come a cropper. Well, of course, that's true up to a point. It's true of everyday knowledge and everyday experience. If we couldn't figure out that it's a bad idea to step off the top of a high cliff, then we wouldn't stay around for very long. We stay around a bit longer in my part of the world, which is extremely flat, uh, uh, but nevertheless, we would obviously uh, come to grief. But it doesn't follow from that, that everyday practicality, that somebody like Isaac Newton can come along and in a quite astonishing imaginative leap, see that the same force that makes the high cliff dangerous is also the force that holds the moon in its orbit around the earth, the earth in its orbit around the sun, can discover the mathematically beautiful law of universal inverse square law gravity, and in terms of that, can explain the behavior of the whole solar system. And of course, about 200 years after Newton, Einstein comes along, discovers general relativity, which is the modern theory of gravity, and in terms of that, is able to explain not just our little local solar system, but to frame <coughs> the first genuinely scientific, <coughs> excuse me, cosmology account of the whole universe. And incidentally, he got it wrong, but that's another, that's another, that's another. So why, why do we have this amazing power? I mean, I worked in quantum physics. I actually worked in elementary particle physics, the smallest bits of matter. And in the quantum world, the quantum world is totally different from the everyday world. In the quantum world, if you know where something is, you don't know what it's doing. If you know what it's doing, you don't know where it is. Uh, that's uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in a nutshell. That world is totally different from the world of every day. And if we're to understand it, we have to think differently about it. But we've learned how to do that. We have powers to understand the world that greatly exceed anything that could be, could be considered as just a survival necessity, just a mundane necessity, or indeed considered as some happy additional spin-off from necessities of that kind. I don't know whether you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, but I hope you might be. If you are, you'll remember that when Holmes and Watson first meet each other, it's in the study in Scarlet, when they first meet each other, they're having breakfast in a London hotel, and right from the start, Holmes is pulling Watson's leg. And he says to Watson, I don't know, he says, I don't know. Does the earth go around the sun or does the sun go around the earth? And the good doctor is horrified at this deplorable scientific ignorance. And Holmes just says, well, what does it matter for my daily work 
as a detective, and it doesn't matter at all. But we all know many, many things. Science has told us many, many things that are actually intellectually satisfying to know, but which are certainly not connected with the necessities of everyday life. So why is science possible? Why can we understand the world so thoroughly and so profoundly? And in fact, the mystery is greater than that even, because it turns out that it is mathematics. Mathematics, which is the key to unlocking the secrets of the physical universe. It's an actual technique in fundamental physics to look for theories whose mathematical expression is in terms of beautiful equations. <clears throat> Some of you will know about mathematical beauty, possibly not all of you. It's a rather austere form of aesthetic pleasure, but it's, so <laughs> but it's something that those of us who speak the language of mathematics can recognize and agree upon. And it is the experience of 300 years of doing theoretical physics that the theories that fundamentally describe the world are, turn out always to be framed in terms of beautiful equations. It's an actual technique of discovery to look for equations of that sort. The greatest theoretical physicist uh, I've known personally, I think, was Paul Dirac, who was one of the founding figures of quantum theory and a professor in Cambridge for many years. He was not a religious man. He was not a man of many words. Uh, and he once said, it is more important to have beauty in your equations than to have them fit experiment. Well, of course, he didn't mean by that that it doesn't matter. Empirical uh, adequacy is a dispensable thing in science. I mean, no scientist could possibly mean that. But you see, if you had a theory and it didn't look as though, at first sight, your equations were going to fit experiment, there were just possibly some ways out of it. Almost certainly, you would have had to solve the equations in some sort of approximation. And maybe you'd made the wrong approximation. You hadn't got the right solution. Or maybe the experiments were wrong. We've known that happened more than once, I have to say, in the history of science. But if your equations were ugly, there was no hope for you. They couldn't <laughs> possibly be right. And Dirac made his very considerable discoveries. He was undoubtedly the greatest British theoretical physicist of the 20th century. He made those discoveries by a relentless and highly successful lifelong pursuit of beautiful equations. Now, something funny is happening in there. You see, we're using mathematics, which, after all, is a very abstract form of human activity to find out about the structure of the world around us. In other words, there seems to be some deep-seated connection between the reason within, the mathematical thoughts in our minds in this case, and the reason without, which is the, the, the pattern and order of the physical world. Dirac had a brother-in-law, Eugene Wigner, who also won a Nobel Prize for physics, and Wigner once said, why is mathematics so unreasonably effective? Why does the reason within apparently perfectly match the reason without, the, the wonderful order of the world in which we live? Now, that's a deep question. It's a meta question. And those sort of questions don't have simple knockdown answers. They're too, too, too profound for that. But for me, a a highly intellectually satisfying answer is the following, that the reason within and the reason without fit together because, in fact, they have a common origin in the rational mind of the creator whose will is the ground both of our mental experience and the physical world of which we are a part. You can summarize what I've been trying to say so far by saying that as uh, physicists study the world, 
They study a world of wonderful order, a world shot through, as you might say, with signs of mind. And it seems to me that it is at least a hypothesis worth considering. But that is so because, in fact, the capital M, mind of the creator, lies behind that wonderful order. I, in fact, believe that science is possible, that the world is deeply intelligible, precisely because it is a creation. And to use ancient and powerful language, we human beings are creatures made in the image of our creator. The power to do theoretical physics is a small part, a small part, no doubt, of the imago dei. So that's one sort of meta question, and it illustrates the way in which a religious belief and understanding doesn't, of course, tell science what to think in its own domain. We have every reason to believe that scientifically posable questions will receive scientifically statable answers, it seems to me, even though some of those answers may prove very difficult to find. But there are these meta-questions that take us beyond science and to which it seems to me religion can provide intellectually satisfying and coherent responses and enable science to be set within a wider and more profound uh, setting of intellectual intelligibility. Now I'd like to ask a second meta-question, and that meta-question is this. Why is the universe so special? Now scientists don't like things to be special. Our instinct is to like things to be general. And our natural assumption would be that the universe is just a common or garden specimen of what a universe might be like. Nothing very special about it. But in fact, as we've studied and understood the history of the universe, we've come to realize that we live in a very remarkable universe indeed. And if it wasn't as remarkable, and in fact it is, we wouldn't be here to be struck at the wonder of it. The universe started, of course, extremely simple. 13.7 billion years ago is the now rather accurate figure that the cosmologists say. And it started as just an almost uniform expanding ball of energy, which is just about the simplest possible physical system that you could ever think about. It's one of the reasons why cosmologists talk, actually with a certain justified boldness, about the fairly early universe, is that it is a very easy thing to think about. But that world that was so simple, started so simple, has become rich and complex. Uh, and after f almost 14 billion years, it has become the home of saints and mathematicians. And we've come to realize, as we understood the steps by which that's happened, that though it took a long time, as far as we know, 10 billion years for any form of life to appear, and 14 billion years for self-conscious life of our complexity to appear. Nevertheless, the universe, in a very real sense, was pregnant with life from the very beginning. In this, in this sense, that unless the physical fabric of the world, that means the given laws of nature, those laws of nature which science uses as the basis of its explanation of what's going on, but which science itself is unable to explain where they come from. They are the, the unexplained given in terms of which science frames all its subsequent explanation. That those laws of nature had to take a very precise, very finely tuned form if the evolution of any form 
of carbon-based life, like ourselves, was to be a possibility in cosmic history. Of course, the evolution of life, the evolution of the universe, was, was an evolving process. But evolution by itself has to have the right material to act upon. Unless the physical fabric of the world was finely tuned for the possibility of carbon-based life, then it could have, the universe could have evolved away forever and nothing interesting would have happened. Its history would have been boring and sterile in the extreme. So we live in a very special world. And let me just give you a couple of illustrations of why we think that's so. There are many, many arguments that point in that direction. And I could spend all evening um, trying to list them, but I won't do that. I'll just give you a couple of examples. First, first example is this. The very early universe is very simple, and so it only does very simple things. For the first three minutes of the universe's life, the whole universe was immensely hot, immensely energetic. It was a sort of cosmic hydrogen bomb with nuclear reactions going on all the time. But as the universe expanded, it cooled. And after just about three minutes, the uh, universe was so was sufficiently cooled that nuclear reactions on a universe-wide scale, on a cosmic scale, ceased. And the nuclear the gross nuclear structure of the world, so to speak, was frozen out at what, in fact, we see it to be today, which is three-quarters hydrogen and one-quarter helium. The early universe is very simple. It only makes very simple things. It only made the two simplest chemical elements, hydrogen and helium. And those two elements have a very boring chemistry. There's nothing very much that you can do with them. The chemistry of life actually requires about 30 elements, but of which the, perhaps the most important is carbon. We call ourselves, when we think about it, carbon-based life. And the reason for that is that carbon is the basis of those very long chain molecules, the chemical properties of carbon, the basis of those very long chain molecules which seem to be uh, necessary uh, for living, living entities. But the early universe had no carbon at all. So where did carbon come from? Well, as the universe began to get a bit clumpy and lumpy, as gravity began to condense things, then stars and galaxies began to form. And as the stars formed, then the matter inside the stars began to heat up. And nuclear reactions began again, no longer on a cosmic scale, no longer universe-wide, but in the interior nuclear furnaces of the stars. And it is in the inter interior nuclear furnaces of the stars that all the heavy elements, there are 90 of them altogether, uh, 30 of, about 30 of them necessary for life, were made beyond hydrogen and helium. And one of the great triumphs of uh, the second half of the 20th century in astrophysics was um, working out how those elements were made by the nuclear reactions inside the stars. And one of the persons who played an absolutely a leading role in that was a senior colleague of mine in Cambridge called Fred Hoyle. And Fred was uh, with Willie Fowler from Caltech. They were thinking together about how these things might happen. And they were absolutely stuck at the start. The first element they really wanted to make was carbon, in fact. And they couldn't, for the life of them, see how to make carbon. You see. They had helium nuclei, we call them alpha particles. They had alpha particles around. 
To make carbon, you have to take three alpha particles and make them stick together. That turns helium-4 into carbon-12. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. The obvious way to do it is to get two of them, make them stick together, first of all. That makes beryllium. And then hope the beryllium stays around for a bit, and a third alpha particle comes wandering along and eventually sticks on and makes carbon-12. But unfortunately, that doesn't work. And it doesn't work, at least it doesn't work in a straightforward way, because beryllium is unstable. And it doesn't oblige you by staying around to acquire that extra alpha particle. So they really couldn't figure out how to, how to do it. And uh, on the other hand, there they were, carbon-based life, thinking about these things. So it must be possible to make carbon. And then Fred had a very good idea. He realized that it would just be possible to make some carbon out of even this very transient beryllium if there was an enhancement, what in the trade we call a resonance, present in carbon. That would produce a, a, an enhanced effect which would make things go much, much quicker than you would expect. But it, you not only had to have a resonance, but you had to have it at the right place. It had to be at the right energy for this process to, to, to be possible. If it was anywhere else, it just wouldn't affect the rate at which things happen. So Fred was convinced that there must be a resonance in carbon at precisely this energy. He could write down what the energy was. So the next thing is he goes to the nuclear data tables to see if there is such a resonance in carbon. And it isn't there in the nuclear data tables. But Fred is so sure that this must be it, and so on, he rings up his friends, the Lauritsons, who are very clever experimentalists at Caltech, and he says to them, you look, you've missed something. You've missed the resonance in, in carbon-12, and I tell you exactly where to look for it. You look at this energy, and you'll find it. And they did. A very staggering, actually, scientific achievement. Uh, and it was a very, very great, great, great thing. But the point is this. That resonance wouldn't be there at that absolutely unique and vital energy if the laws of nuclear physics were in the smallest degree different from what they actually are in our universe. And when Fred saw that and realized that, Fred has always been powerfully inclined towards atheism, uh, but when, when Fred saw that, he said in a Yorkshire accent that I'm afraid is beyond my powers to imitate, he... Uh, <laughs> He said, the universe is our put-up job. <laughs> In other words, this can't be just a happy accident. There must be something lying behind this. And because Frey doesn't like the word God, he said there must be some capital I intelligence behind what's going on in, 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 in the world. So there we are. We're all, actually, we're all creatures of stardust. We're all, every atom of carbon in our bodies was once inside a star. And that's possible because the laws of nuclear physics are what they are and not anything else. Let me give you just one more example of fine-tuning. Uh, and this is the, the, the most exacting example of all. Um, it's possible to think of there, there being a sort of energy present in the universe, which is associated simply with space itself. And that energy is, these days, usually called dark energy. It used to be called the cosmological constant. But it's 
got to be called dark energy because just recently astronomers believe that they have measured the presence of this, this dark energy. In fact, it's driving the expansion of the universe. Now, what's striking about that is that this energy is very, very, very small compared with what you would expect its natural value to be. You can figure out, and I won't go into the details, you can figure out what you would expect the natural value of this energy to be. It's, if you're in the trade, it's due to vacuum effects and things of that nature. But it turns out that the observed um, dark energy, if the observations are correct, is 10 to the minus 120 times the natural expected value. That's 1 over 1 followed by 120 zeros. And even if you're not a mathematician, I'm sure you can see that's a very small number indeed. But if that number were not actually as small as it is, we wouldn't be here to be astonished at it. Because anything bigger than that would have blown the universe apart so quickly that no interesting things could happen. It would become too dilute for anything as interesting as life to be possible. So there are all these sort of fine tunings present in the world. All scientists would agree about those facts. Where the disagreements come, of course, is in answering the meta question, what do we make of that? What do we think about the, the, uh, the, the uh, remarkable uh, character of, of, of the world, the specific character of the world? Was Fred right to think that the universe is indeed a put-up job and there is some sort of intelligence behind it all? Well, I've got a friend who thinks about these things. Uh, He's written a very good book about these things. I'm sure you all know that this, these considerations about the fine-tuning of the universe are called the anthropic principle. Um, not meaning uh, that the world is tuned to produce literally homo sapiens, but by anthropoi, meaning beings of our complexity, our self-conscious complexity. Uh, and I have a friend who has written, I think, the best book about the anthropic principle. His name is John Leslie, and he wrote a book called Universes. And he's an interesting chap. He's a philosopher. And he's an interesting chap because he uh, does his philosophy by telling stories, which is very nice. He's a parabolic philosopher. And, and uh, that's very nice for chaps like me who aren't trained in philosophy because, uh, you know, everyone can appreciate a story. And he tells the following story. You are about to be executed. You are tied to the stake. Your eyes are bandaged. And the rifles of ten highly trained marksmen are leveled at your chest. The officer gives the order to fire, the shots ring out, and you find you have survived. So what do you do? Do you just walk away saying, gee, that was a close one? Or, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. So remarkable an occurrence demands some form of explanation. And Leslie suggests that there are really only two rational explanations for your good fortune. One is this. Maybe there are many, many, many executions taking place today. Even the best of marksmen occasionally miss, and you happen to be in the one where they all miss. Now, there will have to be an awful lot of executions taking place today for that to be a workable explanation, but if there are enough, then it's a rational possibility. But there is, of course, another possi possible explanation, namely maybe there's only one execution scheduled for today, namely yours. But more was going on in that event 
than you were aware of. The marksmen were on your side, and they missed by design. Well, you see how that charming story translates into thinking about the anthropic fine-tunings, the special character of the universe in which we live. First of all, we should look for an explanation of it. Now, of course, obviously, if the universe wasn't finely tuned for carbon-based life, we, carbon-based life, wouldn't be here to think about it. But the coincidences, the fine-tunings required, are so specific and so remarkable that it is no more sensible for us to say, we're here because we're here and there's nothing else to talk about, than it would be for that chap who uh, missed being executed to say, gee, that was a close one. So we should look for an explanation. And basically, there are two possible explanations. One is, maybe there are just many, many, many different universes, all with different laws of nature, different kinds of forces, different strengths of forces, so on and so on. And if there are enough of those universes, and there will have to be a lot of them, an enormous number of them, but if there are enough of them, then, of course, by chance, one of them will be suitable for carbon-based life. It will be the winning ticket in the cosmic lotteries, you might say. And that, of course, is the one in which we live, because we are carbon-based life. That would be a many universes uh, explanation. But, of course, there is another possibility. Maybe there is only one universe, which is the way it is, because it isn't just any old world, but it is a creation which has been endowed by its creator with precisely the finely tuned laws and circumstances that will and have allowed it to have a fruitful history. So many universes, many, many universes, or design, a creative design. Which should we choose? Well, Leslie says, we don't know which to choose. It's six of one and half a dozen of the other. And I think, actually, in relation to what I've just been talking about, about these anthropic fine-tunings, Leslie is right about that. Both suggestions are what, are what you might call metaphysical. Sometimes people try and dress the many universes while up in scientific dress, but essentially, I think, uh, it, it, is, it is a metaphysical guess. We don't have direct experience of those many, many, many other universes. That's a sort of metaphysical guess, just as the existence of a creator God is a sort of metaphysical guess. So which should we choose? Well, if that's the only thing we're thinking about, we can choose one or the other with equal um, plausibility. But if we've widened the argument, then I think we shall see that the assumption that there are many, many, many universes only does one piece of explanatory work. The only thing it explains is to explain away the particularity of our observed and experienced universe. It's piece of work is to diffuse the, the threat of theism. But the theistic explanation, it does seem to me, does a number of other pieces of work. I've already suggested that a theistic view of the world explains the deep intelligibility of the world that science experiences and exploits. And, um, and I also believe, of course, that uh, there's a whole swathe of religious experience of the human testified encounter with the reality of the sacred, which is also explained by the, the belief in the existence of God. So that there, it seems to me there is a cumulative case for theism in which the anthropic argument can play one, one part 
but only one part. So, so, and it won't, of course, surprise you, given what you know about me, that it is, it is that latter explanation, the one that I myself embrace. Well, there we are. There's quite the relationship between science and, 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 and religion. Um, the intelligibility of the world, the particular fruitfulness of the universe, are striking things that science draws to our attention but does not itself explain. And it seems to me that religion can offer science the gift of a more extensive, more profound understanding to set the remarkable results of science within a more profound matrix of understanding. Science also, it seems to me, gives gifts to religion. The gift that science principally gives to religion is to tell religion what the history and nature of the world is like and has been. And religious people should take that absolutely seriously. Those who are seeking to serve the God of truth should welcome truth from whatever source it comes. Not all truth comes from science, of course, by any means. But real truth does come from science, and we should welcome that. And the truth of science actually, in my view, is able to help religion with what is religion's most difficult problem. What's the most difficult problem of religion? What holds people back from religious belief more than any other? What troubles those of us who are religious believers more than any other? Well, I'm sure we are likely to agree that it is the problem of the suffering that is present in the world, the disease and disaster that seems to be present in what is claimed to be the creation of a good and perfect God and powerful God. I don't need to explain uh, what that problem is. It, it, it's only too clear. Now, interestingly enough, the insight that science offers that the world is an evolving world and evolutionary thinking is fundamental to all scientific thinking about the history of the universe, not just the evolution of life here on Earth, though, of course, that's part of the story, but the evolving history of the universe itself, the processes by which uh, the galaxies and the stars formed and so on, all those are evolutionary processes. And it's interesting that when Darwin published his great work on the origin of species in 1859, there is a sort of popular picture which is absolutely, totally historically ignorant, which was that that was the moment of fantastic head-on collision between science and, and religion, with all the scientists shouting, yes, 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 and all the religious people, the clergy particularly, shouting, no, no, no. That's absolutely historically untrue. There was a good deal of argument and confusion on both sides of, of the question. Quite a lot of scientists had lots of difficulties with Darwin. It was only when Mendel's discovery of genetics was rediscovered and the neo-Darwinian synthesis came along, the people really began to see that they were, feel, feel on surer ground, really, in relation to it. And equally, there were religious people who, from the start, welcomed the insights of evolutionary thinking into the nature of God's creation. And I'm happy to say that two of those people who welcomed that were Anglican clergymen in England. One was Charles Kingsley, and the other was Frederick Temple. And they both coined the phrase that I think perfectly encapsulates the theological way to think about an evolving world. They said no doubt God could have snapped the divine fingers and brought into being a ready-made world, but God had chosen to do something cleverer than that. For in bringing into being an evolving world, 
God had made a creation in which creatures could make themselves. In other words, from a theological point of view, evolving process is the way in which creatures explore and bring to birth the deep fruitfulness and potentiality with which the Creator has endowed creation. And that gift of being themselves, making themselves, is, I think, what you would expect the God of love to give to that God's creation. The God of love will not be the puppet master of the universe, pulling every string. So I think that a, a creation making itself, an evolving world, which is a creation making itself, is a great good. A greater good than a ready-made world would be. But it's a good that has a necessary cost. Because that process of shuffling exploration of potentiality will necessarily involve ragged edges and blind alleys. The engine that has driven, for example, the evolution of life here on Earth has been genetic mutation in germ cells that have produced new forms of life. But the same biochemical processes that enable germ cells to mutate and to produce new forms of life will necessarily allow somatic cells, body cells, also to mutate and become malignant. You can't have one without the other. So the fact that there is cancer in the world, which is undoubtedly an anguishing aspect of the world and a source of, of grief and anger to us, is at least not gratuitous. It's not something that a God who is a little bit more compassionate or a little bit more competent could easily have removed. It's the shadow side of the creativity of the world. It's the necessary cost of a creation allowed to make itself. Now, you can argue whether it's a cost worth paying, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that the, this, this consideration I've been laying out in the last couple of minutes solves all the problems of evil and suffering, but it does at least help us. As I say, it seems to indicate that it's not gratuitous. You see, we all tend to think that if we'd been in charge of creation, we would have done it better. We would have kept all the nice things and thrown away all the nasty things, the sunsets, the flowers, the disease and disaster. But the more scientifically we actually understand the process of the world, the more we see how inextricably interlinked all these things are, that there is a dark side as well as a light side to what's going on. And that's a small hope, small help in, in relation to, to what's going on. Well, I've always finished what I have to say, and we, the conversation will be the most interesting part of the evening. Um, if you are totally convinced by everything I've said this evening, it will have led you no more than to a picture of God as the great mathematician or the cosmic architect. It's been a limited form of inquiry. And there is still much more that one might ask about the nature of God and much more that one might seek to learn about the nature of God. And that will have to be found in other forms of human experience. A very important aspect of belief in God is the belief not only that there is a being who is the creator of the world, but there is a being who is worthy of worship. And I just indicate, just with a tiniest sketch, how I would approach that issue. I am deeply impressed by the existence of value in the world, something that science directly does not take into account. But our 
our physical world of which we are a part is shot through with value. With beauty, for example. I mean, music's very interesting. Suppose you ask a scientist, as a scientist, to tell you all that he or she can about music. Well, they will say it's neural response, neurons firing away, to the impact of vibrations in the air hitting the eardrum. And of course that's true. And of course in its way it's worth knowing. But it hardly tells you all you might want to know about the deep mystery of music. Science trawls experience with a very coarse-grained net. And the fact that these vibrations in the air somehow are able to speak to us, and I believe speak truly to us, of, uh, of a timeless beauty is a very striking thing about the world. Similarly, I think we have moral knowledge of a, a sure kind as any that we possess. I do not for a minute believe that our conviction that torturing children is wrong is either some kind of curious disguised genetic strategy or just the convention of our society. Our tribe just happens to choose not to, to torture children. It's a fact about the world that torturing children is wrong. We have moral knowledge. Where do these value-laden things come from? Well, I think they come from God, actually. Just as I think that the wonderful order of the world and the fruitfulness of cosmic history are reflections of the mind and, 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 and purpose of the Creator, so I think our ethical intuitions are intimations of God's good and perfect will, and our aesthetic experiences are a sharing in the Creator's joy in creation. For me, theistic belief ties together all these things in a way that is deeply satisfying and intellectually coherent. And then there would be many other questions still remaining. Even if there is such a God worthy of worship, does that God care for you and me? And that's a question I couldn't answer without looking into taking the risk and both of commitment and of ambiguity and looking into personal experience and for me, that would mean looking into my Christian encounter with the person and reality of Christ. That's a subject for another discussion on another evening, I think. Um, anyway, here I am. I stand before you as somebody who is both a physicist and a priest. And I'm grateful for both of those things. And I want to be two-eyed. I want to look with the eye of science on the world, and I want to look with the eye of my Christianity on the world. And I believe that that binocular vision that those give me enable me to see and understand more than I would be able to do with either of them on their own. But it would be nice to know what you think about these things, and I think the time has come to let you have a go. So over to you. Well, thank you, Dr. Polkinghorn. Um, I'm sure there are people here who have questions. I'm sure I know some of them personally. Uh, if uh, somebody wants to stand to the microphone, win if you'd uh, step back to the microphone. And uh, if anyone else has a question, get, comments, in, get in line or comments, as long as they end in a, in a question mark uh, and are very brief. So um, go thank ahead. You. Uh, sir, you started your speech with stating that the common denominator of science and religion is the search for truth. Yeah, right. When I was in school, I learned that the, that the basics of science is the search for proof, not truth. Proof. 
And so I was waiting in your speech for some kind of um, sentence to the fact that, or where, how can you prove that there is God? I mean, you know that this is the core question, and that I'm kind of missing that. Well, I think that that's a very interesting comment to make. I think that we have learnt that um, all forms of human rational inquiry are a little bit more subtle than concluding with knockdown proof, knockdown argument. Even in mathematics, Kurt Gödel taught us that any mathematical system of sufficient complexity to include arithmetic, which means the whole numbers, will contain statements that can be made, but which can neither be proved nor disproved within that system. So there's a sort of openness, even in mathematics. And in fact, a little act of faith is concerned to, uh, to commit oneself to the consistency of a mathematical system. It can't be demonstrated. Mind you, not many people lie awake at night worrying about the consistency of arithmetic, but nevertheless, that's, that's the case. So I think we've learned that the proof in that knockdown rational, the clear and certain ideas that the Enlightenment program stemming from Descartes put on the agenda is a glorious, magnificent program, but it's a failure. No form of human knowledge has that kind. And science, though it certainly um, produces uh, convincing theories, it does not, I think, produce proof. In my view, the greatest philosopher of science in the 20th century was Michael Polanyi, who was a very distinguished uh, physical chemist before he became a philosopher, and knew science really from the inside. And in the preface to his most famous book, which is called Personal Knowledge, he says, I'm writing this book, and he's writing about science, remember. I'm writing this book to show how I may commit myself to what I believe to be true, knowing that it might be false. And I think that is actually the human situation. So what I think we are looking for, and what I'm looking for in both my scientific searches and in my religious searches, is for motivated belief. And I believe that the success of science and also the illuminating power of religion encourages the idea that motivated belief is sufficiently close to truth for us to commit ourselves to it. But I think proof is, is actually uh, not, the, not, not the category that we might think it, it is. Sorry, that was a rather long reply. Next. Next. I, I had the fortune to meet uh, Stephen Hawking. Uh-huh. At uh, Caltech, when I'd go there for lectures to try and keep my brain afloat when I was living in California, I still I still think my um, my IQ went down about two points a year, but I tried to keep it from diminishing any more than it did. Yeah, okay, okay. But I had a question for him, and he wouldn't answer, and that was, did he believe in God? And I was wondering if you, having been at Cambridge as you have, no doubt have run into him, and what uh, what your thoughts were about his thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I, Steve and I were colleagues in the same department for many years. It's not easy to have a conversation with Steve because it's so laborious for Steve to, to produce things. And he tends, when he does give an answer, he tends to say yes or no, whilst the rest of us, you know, say, well, think of it this way, maybe this, maybe that. I mean, he just can't do that with the handicap that he has, uh, of course, fought against so remarkably. It's a very interesting question of why God keeps on popping up in the text of brief history. God is not in the index. God is certainly there in the text. And it's a book about quantum cosmology, which does not require you to mention God from start to finish for its prime purpose. Well, I won't try and presume to say what Stephen thinks, but 
there are a lot of people, a lot of my friends in the, in, in the scientific world, uh, are both wistful and wary about religion. They're wistful because they can see that science doesn't tell you everything. There is, they wish there to be and they seek uh, a broader, deeper story than science alone can tell. But they're wary. They're wary of religion because they know that religion is based upon faith and they think that faith is shutting your eyes, gritting your teeth, believing six impossible things before breakfast because some unquestionable authority tells you that's what you've got to do. And they don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that. And I dare say you don't want to do that. So what I'm always trying to, to, to display to my friends, and to you this evening if I can in a way, um, is that I have motivations for my religious beliefs. They're not just, here's the nice scene for you, don't ask any questions, sign on the dotted line. I have motivations for my religious beliefs, just as I have motivations for my scientific beliefs. Of course, the two sets of motivations are somewhat different because the, the types of truth, dimensions of reality that are being investigated are somewhat different, but they have that in common. That's what I mean by the search for truth. Just before the next question, can everyone in this area hear? No. Um, I'm sorry, what, what should I do? I think you should berate one of the sound people. No. <laughs> well, that's, uh, Maybe, um, that's cathartic, but not very useful. If you... If you if, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if you could. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and speak closer you. to this. I'm sorry. Thank I'm, you. Forgive me. <laughs> you need to look. Nothing is more irritating on an occasion like this for someone to come up to you afterwards and say, "Couldn't hear a word." <laughs> if you can't hear what I'm saying, just wave, and I'll do what I can. Right. Next. Next gentleman. Uh, I believe you dismissed the uh, the idea of many different universes operating with separate laws of engagement, I guess, uh, instead thinking of a universe that's fine-tuned. Yep. I've read several studies, uh, New York Times articles, and friends who have told me about... Speak up, David. I'm, I'm not hearing sorry, you very well. The, the possibility of uh, alternative dimensions, more than three dimensions, four, five, yeah. six, seven. So I'm wondering how that idea or that reality would coincide with what you were saying about the existence of many... Universes or one. It's fine. Well, uh, the, my old subject of elementary particle physics has become very speculative. Uh, string theory, I gather there was a television program about that the other night, is a very interesting exploration of possible ideas, but it's trying to guess what the world is like. 16 orders of magnitude, that means 16 powers of 10, beyond what we know from direct empirical or observational uh, encounter. And the lessons of history are against even the cleverest people being able to do that. So I'd be cautious about that. But even if you did that, string theory is based upon a certain way of putting these things together, the existence of quantum mechanics, the existence of general relativity, of gravitational theory. Where do they come from? They are indispensable items in a, in, a, in a fruitful world. You need gravity to make stars and everything, to produce structures. You need quantum mechanics because it is both orderly and open. It fixes some things, but doesn't fix everything. And you need a certain flexibility for the development of, 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 of complex systems. So there would still be, the universe would still be, have very remarkable properties to it, which I think would still demand some sort of explanation and would not be uh, explained just by saying, well, it's just our luck. So I think there's something left to think about. I mean, I could have done a more nuanced discussion of that, but I didn't have time. Next one. 
In your presentation of the anthropic principle right. and uh, theistic evolution, you presented us with a God who was clever enough to allow us to be involved in the creation. Oh. So with the current state of genetic research mm -hmm. and potential manipulation, yeah. what are the limits, if any, of our involvement in that creation? Well, that's a very important question, obviously a pressing question. I've actually, I've just finished doing all this now, but for about 10 years I was involved in various United Kingdom government advisory committees connected with, uh, with uh, genetic advances. And you see, what happens is that science gives you knowledge and I think knowledge is always a good thing. I think it's a better basis for decision than ignorance. But technology takes knowledge and turns it into power. And not everything that you can do, you should do. So you need to add to knowledge and power, you need to add wisdom, which is the ability to choose the good and refuse the bad. And there are, there are obviously quite difficult um, things to decide there. And, and I think, first of all, they have to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. There's no simple rule that says, you know, if you tick five boxes out of seven, it's okay. You have to look at these things case by case. And it, you, can't, you can't leave the judgments simply to the experts. Because research is very exciting. And you can get carried away by the technological imperative. We've done this, we've done that. Come on, let's do the next thing. But the next thing may be the thing that you shouldn't do. So you can't leave it to the experts. That's why society has a, a role to play. But of course you can't do without the experts because only the experts can tell you what might be on the agenda. So we need a debate. And it much grieves me that in my own country, and I rather suspect in this country too, so much of moral debate is the clash of single issue pressure groups. One side shouting, X is wonderful. The other side shouting, X is terrible. And whatever X is, it's very unlikely to be either of those things. X will be good for some purposes and bad for others. And we need a more careful, temperate, and nuanced ethical discussion. On that note, yeah. um, my question is aimed more at the artistic side of right. the search. Right. And uh, failing math miserably in high school, I only passed because they wanted me out. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate real, it. We're all leading for confessions about science and mathematics, isn't it? <laughs> you are a free liberal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it was a very healthy curve. Anyway, um, I now am a, um, a playwright and mm -hmm. a designer. Right. And one of the things that I come across more than anything is um, the search for truth, mm. uh, both of my clients and in myself. Yep. Uh, I am a Christian and I uh, feel very strongly. My question is, in one of your books you had said that between, um, I think, theology and physics or theology and science, yeah. art mm. was in between there. And you also had said in that book something about how earth is the theater where all this plays out. Right. So I just wanted to ask if you could possibly elaborate on that a little bit. Well, it's a big subject. Uh, I did refer to it very briefly at the end of what I said when talking about God being worthy of worship and the role of, of value. When I, when I, one of the things I, I'm always trying to encourage myself and others is, is to take a rich and generous view of the, re, of the, the world that we live in. 
of the multi-layered reality within which we live. And for example, to believe, as I do indeed believe, that the personal is as important, indeed more important, than the impersonal, that the unique and unrepeatable is as significant as the repeatable. I mean, science is concerned largely with the impersonal and the repeatable. And in trying to encourage people like that, uh, if I'm trying to talk to my friends about, about, say, motivated belief in God, often to get from science to God in one step is far too big a leap. And so to ask them what they think about music, I mean, I posed that question very briefly this evening, what they think about music and, and it encourages them, I think, to take seriously a more generous metaphysic. And that's a very important, a very important thing. You see, if you think that science told you everything that's worth knowing, it would be a very cold, impersonal world that was so described. We wouldn't find ourselves in that world. Uh, we, and, and so I think, and the arts are very, I think, very, very significant in, in that respect. And if we reflect upon, for example, human nature, what it is to be a human being, one of the prime windows into human nature is through literature. And great literature is always concerned with the individual and the personal. The subject of great literature is not every man or every woman, but Hamlet or King Lear or whatever it is. And we have to take those things seriously. How's the sound level over here? Better? Not great? If you can speak closer to the mic. Okay, I'll try and shout out if you can't hear me. I'm like, yes, please. Um, I, I'd like to start out with a comment. Sure. That, um, I often observe that the relationship between, the unfortunate relationship between religion and science is that religion is often a science stopper. That is, for example, in the creationist evolution de- debate, sure. um, there were problems in science of what the creationists called uh, irreducible complexity. Right. And the answer to this problem was God, God, uh, the God of the gaps. And I think subsequently there are biochemical processes we understand where a lot of these problems of irreducible complexity have been addressed. So that's my comment. I have two questions on, I think, basically, I think you've presented two arguments for at least an intelligent designer. One is the, um, the conformity between the reason within and the reason without. And you say that this is a metaphysical question beyond the realm of science. Right. And I'm wondering if, can't we pose this as actually a scientific question why is it that human beings are able to, how is it that human beings are able to reason about deep abstract mathematical truths? And I would guess that one answer is the very same cognitive processes of generalization and inductive reasoning that allows a, a person to look at one cliff that has one shape and another cliff that has one shape and generalize that when you go over both of them, you die. Um, are the very same cognitive processes that allow us to think deeply and abstractly about mathematical problems. So that's, that's my first question. The second question Make is Make it the, quick, then, because I think you're having a bit of a wrong run. The second question is um, the, your, the argument to intelligent design from um, the anthropic principle. I'm wondering if you would agree that there are two premises behind the argument that are unproven. One that it is possible for the universe to have other cosmological constants or other natural laws. I don't think that this is, that's been proven. I think it's an unproven premise of the argument. Right. The second, that it is like 10 marksmen aiming at a person who, and they, them missing, 
that it was highly improbable that the constants are what they are. And again, I think that's a premise that's not been proven. I'm, I'm wondering if you would agree with those statements. Well, let me try and answer those, those last, last points. It, it, seems, it seems to me, some people suggest that maybe the true constants of nature are absolutely fixed by the consistency of the theory. I think that's only even remotely credible if you already suppose that the theory has to contain quantum theory and gravity, because that's the only thing that would sharpen it up. But suppose even that was, to, and I myself am very doubtful that there will not be scale parameters in any successful um, uh, combination of those two theories. But the, secondly, suppose it were the case that the only logically consistent theory happened also to be a theory that produced beings of our complexity, I would think that the most astonishing uh, anthropic coincidence of all in, in, in actual fact. And I forgot what your first question is because it's too far in the, in, in the past. Can you? That's, no, I, I think we'll have to move on to future questions. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry about that. It's, it's my fault. Right, Not next. really. <laughs> Thank you. Um, regarding what you said about mutations being both beneficial right. and harmful as part of your model of a created right. by yeah. design universe. Yeah. Um, as a layman, I have observed and heard constant news reports about genetic defects and so on, and that obviously points to harmful mutations. Right. Do we have actual evidence observable, empirically so, in, in the laboratory or just in everyday life of, of uh, bona fide beneficial mutations as opposed to something by inference that we assume uh -huh. from billions of years ago? Uh, well, I, we certainly have in things like bacteria that have, that have very uh, uh, rapid uh, reproduction rates. And that, that's actually, in one sense, it's beneficial for the bacteria. It's not beneficial to us. They mutate and, 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 and produce strains that resist various antibiotics. And then those strains, of course, become dominant. Uh, so that we, we, at the bacterial level, certainly, we see that. And maybe a bit higher up, too. Uh, so I think that's, that's, that, 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 that we do know that that does happen. I remembered, incidentally, what the first question was, which was, isn't everyday, isn't everyday reasoning uh, going to lead us to the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics? Well, I tried to deal with it, and I think the answer is no, it won't. Uh, I mean, the quantum world requires a type of thinking about it. It indeed requires a type of logic which is different from the logic of the everyday world, the Aristotelian logic of the everyday world. Uh, and so we, cer we certainly didn't get that out of just somehow generalizing our everyday experience. So I, so I, I think my answer would be no. I, I don't. I'm not persuaded that's so. Please, sorry. Uh, this is related to the last uh, question. Right. If natural laws reflect the mind of the lawgiver, yeah. and if natural laws contemplate cancer as a necessary component right. of evolution, right. what do you say to the skeptic who rejects the idea of God based on God's culpability for the content of his laws? Well, that's a very fair point, and I did say that I didn't think that that observation are removed by any means, all the, all the difficulties. Uh, they, they, are, they are considerable. The question is, is, we live in a world that is remarkably fruitful and beautiful, remarkably um, chilling and, and, and um, frightening and destructive. And it's a very ambiguous sort of picture. And, and um, somehow, I mean, somehow or other, the argument always is that the... Um, that the bad things are the necessary cost of the good things. 
That's not an argument you can utter, even if you're a totally convinced religious believer, without a quiver in your voice. I mean, the world is too, too complex and too strange for that. I have to say myself, let me just say one specifically Christian thing this evening. Um, for me, the possibility of religious belief really centers on my Christian belief. And Christian, a Christian understanding of God's relationship to suffering is not that God is simply a compassionate spectator looking down on the strange and bitter world that God holds in being. But in the cross of Christ, as a Christian, I believe that God has participated in the suffering of the world. That God is truly a fellow sufferer. The Christian God is the crucified God. That's a very deep and mysterious, and I believe true, insight. And that is the level, the deep level, at which the problem of suffering has to be met. And the possibility of religious belief it really, for me, rests at that, at that level. We've got time for just a few more <clears throat> questions. Okay. Um, this is, sort of involves both Eric and you, Sir John. In Eric's joke about you being knocked over by being able to be knocked over by a feather, could you maybe use um, your applied physics to determine when the joke reached terminal velocity? <laughs> or went retrograde? I had to say that. Um, um, my question is, um, there are several people here who are artists, uh, writers, and people from California um, <laughs> with questions. And um, I hear you described uh, a, a theorem or something, or, or an equation, a mathematical equation when it is right being beautiful and that truth, and that there's order and structure, maybe even scientific structure, that that's involved in beauty. Right. And you also mentioned, um, obviously, in physics and in life, obviously there's a story and there's a history involved in science. Um, as a writer, you know, there's like myriad books out there about the right structure to art or the right structure to storytelling. And... Um, in reading Joseph Campbell and things, I've had lights go on in terms of like there being tr true structures to story. And I'm wondering, as a um, priest, um, as as someone um, involved in clergy, and also in in the Bible, if you see structure to God's stories and to art, that there's something that you can determine empirically to be true. Well, I do, I do believe that God discloses the divine nature through the unfolding of history, in, particularly in particular people and particular events, that there are particular occasions and particular persons uh, through whom the, the divine nature is, is, is more visible than, than is normally the case. And in my view, the authority of the Bible uh, stems from the fact that it is the account of the history of Israel and then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which are, for me, the prime events through which God has acted to make God's nature and purposes known. Um, so that, yes, there is an unfolding there. But it is a... I mean, the, the story... I mean, we have to read the story and accept the story um, on its own terms, so to speak, it seems to me, that we don't know, the, the, the story is not, is not determined by our judgment beforehand. We have to respond to that. And authors tell me, that, who write novels, that, uh, that uh, you know, characters take over and all that, uh, all that sort of thing. And I'm inclined to uh, understand that, that, uh, 
that may be so. So there is a sort of authenticity which is involved in, in, in story, which, uh, whether it's a scientific story or not. I'm sorry, that's a very stuffy answer to a question that leaves me a little bit at sea, as you'll perceive. Sorry, I'm not talking to this wretched thing again. Yes. Two, two more questions. Right. How are you, sir? Um, my basic quest here tonight is um, everyone asked their questions. I had um, many other questions, but I had a conversation today with my mom, and um, I just have a very basic question. Right. Um, John verse something, God so loved the world that he gave his only whatever. If you don't believe within him, you shall perish. Are we so right in our conviction that we are the ones? Are we sorry? Are we so right in our conviction that we are the ones that will be right? If you don't believe in him, you shall perish. I think that has far-reaching implications to Muslims, Buddhists, mm. Shintos, and there are more of them than us. Well, I believe that, that God is merciful and loving. And I believe that God's offer of mercy and love is not a limited offer for this life only. And that at death, the curtain comes down. And if you're caught on the wrong side of it, God says, too bad, you had your chance, you missed it. Uh, that doesn't seem to me the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe, but equally I believe that what the decisions and actions uh, we take in this life and the beliefs to which we commit ourselves are very important. Those who wittingly and willfully turn from God in this life will find it, to say the least, more painful and more difficult to accept God's mercy in the destiny that awaits all of us, I think, beyond death. So I, 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 I'm, I'm not a... I mean, I think more know Christ than know Christ by name. I also, I also believe that all will come to the Father through Christ, ultimately, because, believing as I do, that Jesus is both human and divine, he is, if you like, the unique bridge between the life of God and the life of created humanity. And that's the way. I mean, our ultimate destiny is to share in the life and energies of God, I believe. And, and that uh, the... the the way into that is indeed the way through Christ. Um, and I believe there are, again, I believe there are people who are on that way without knowing the name of the way on which they're traveling. We've got time for one question, and it can't be about evolution. <laughs> well, you took the words out of my mouth. Actually, it was the, it was the person in line who really... Uh, were you were in waiting, sir? With the, with the, yeah. I'm afraid yours is the last question. Uh, doctor, you mentioned, I, this is evolution was my question, but it's, it's a little different from what you've heard. Uh, you mentioned that evolution was absolutely fundamental to right. understanding of science. Right. And um, as you know, in the biological world especially, the uh, coded information passed on in DNA is extremely complicated. All right. Uh, the, just the, the running of a body, the building of a body, the eye, on, on, on. Uh, A.E. Wilder Smith has made the comments uh, about uh, in the evolutionary theory, the missing fact is information. Yeah, could you comment upon the fact of the coded information that is in the biological world if it comes by chance through evolution, as you've talked about? Yes, I, I think that's a very interesting uh, question. I think that actually that the concept of information is going to be um, an extremely important concept in the development of 21st century science. And I venture to think that by the end of the 21st century, of course I can't see it, but by the end of the 21st century, information, in some sense, meaning the structure of dynamical 
the specification of the structure of a dynamical pattern, will be as important a concept as energy has been in the last 150 years. We are just beginning, scientifically, to study the behavior of complex systems, the detailed behavior of complex systems. Nothing like as complicated as a single living cell, let alone a human being, but mostly models that are run, logical models that are run on computers. And those already show us that complex systems in their totalities display astonishing properties that you would never guess from thinking about the properties of the constituent bits and pieces. And that those properties, many of those properties relate to the spontaneous generation of extraordinarily high patterns of order. In other words, the spontaneous generation of something like information-bearing uh, behavior. Uh, let me give you an example which is chosen from Stuart Kaufman's book, At Home in the Universe. Kaufman is a chap who works on so-called complexity theory and is interested particularly in its application to biology. Consider the system in which, uh, consisting of electric light bulbs, this will be the picture of it, the bulbs are either on or off, the system develops in steps. Each bulb is correlated with two other bulbs somewhere else in the array. What those two bulbs are doing now, on or off, will determine what this bulb does at the next step of the array. And there are very simple rules that specify this. You start the array off in a random configuration of illumination. Some bulbs are on, some bulbs are off. And then you let it just play away on your computer and see what happens. Now, I don't know what you'd guess what would happen. I would guess nothing really interesting would happen. It would just twinkle away haphazardly for as long as you let it. But that's not true. The system soon settles down to, an ex to a self-generated, extraordinarily orderly behavior, cycling through a very limited number of patterns of illumination. If there are 10,000 light bulbs in the array, there are 2 to the 10,000 or 10 to the 3,000 different states of illumination in principle possible. That's a 1 followed by 3,000 zeros. In actual fact, you'll find that the system will soon cycle through 100 different patterns of illumination. So one with 3,000 zeros possibilities has somehow spontaneously got focused down onto 100 possibilities. That's a quite astonishing generation of order, and I can see that as the generation of information. In fact, I think, if I remember correctly, that he calls the, that chapter information for free. So there are lots of things still to discover. I don't say that there aren't pro problems. Of course there are, and they're certainly not solved yet. But I think we should be wary of, uh, of, 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 of um, generalizing too quickly. Dr. Polkinghorne, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much.